Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Welcome, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And we have Mark Griffith on the line. Mark is the co-founder and executive director of the Brooklyn Movement Center, a member-based community organizing group serving Bedford-Stuyvesant and North Crown Heights. Mark, do you want to tell us about the Brooklyn Movement Center? The Brooklyn Movement Center is a member of many different coalitions that has been around for more than 10 years. It's based in the largest concentration of urban living black folks in the United States, uh, Brooklyn, New York. And we essentially identify issues of importance to, to local folks, black folks in particular. And we build campaigns around those issues that address policy and practice in New York City and across the country that affect us where we live, essentially. So what are some of those issues that you've identified over the 10-year period? Sure. They, they've ranged from education and parent organizing, making sure that people are self-determining as far as their education is concerned, their public education. It has meant police accountability, making sure that uh, discriminatory and abusive policing is addressed um, and that we build alternatives to community safety in central Brooklyn that don't rely exclusively on the police. It has meant environmental justice and sustainability. It has meant food sovereignty and making sure that black people have not only access to healthy food in central Brooklyn, but that we're exerting some level of control over the food system you know, from where the food is grown to how it gets to New York and Brooklyn and how people are purchasing and consuming that food as well. So it has spanned a, a, a pretty broad range of issues. And we are a membership organization, which means that, you know, uh, you join the, the Brooklyn Movement Center and as such, you're a stakeholder, not just a, not just a constituent. Um, I mean, we, we, address issues from different angles. And so, you know, we're a relatively small organization. I'm not going to say that we are able to, I mean, we're, we're intersectional in the sense that we're not a single issue organization and we look at the sort of the full life of people who live in central Brooklyn. And I guess you can say that, you know, we don't necessarily identify health as a discrete issue that we work on, but I would say that we address health in, in, in a multitude of ways. That is, we, we talk about and we fight around environmental justice and sustainability. And what that looks like in central Brooklyn, for instance, is the fact that we are what's called a, uh, a heat island. Heat is concentrated 
in the area where we live and there's a very high incidence of people dying from extreme heat, particularly uh, people who are socially isolated, um, uh, older people, uh, people who don't have access to air conditioners, they die of um, extreme heat at a very high rate in central Brooklyn. So mm. we, we address that. We address um, health from the angle of food and, and making sure that people have access to nutritional foods. We've built consciousness around how people are consuming food and where they're purchasing it from and thinking of food in a way that contributes to their health. It's not just a way of surviving, but it's a way of, of thriving. Uh, and then even when we talk about uh, our police accountability, we think of it we, we think of it as a health issue. We think of it in terms of the fact that people are dying in our communities either because we are living in the kinds of conditions that so oftentimes force us to prey on, on one another or we are being threatened and assaulted and killed in many instances by the police and by the, and by the criminal justice system in general. And so... Um, I think that when we when we think and talk about health, it's important to think of it in much more expansive ways, right? And I would say that's true of any issue that you look at in whether it be Central Brooklyn or or any other neighborhood. That is, we we have a way of thinking of issues in very sort of siloed and narrowed way, oftentimes that are defined by government or defined by foundations and, and philanthropy. And I think it's important to see issues, whether it be health or anything else, in ways that get to how people actually live, right? So well, at, the, at, at the point that someone is in a hospital and is, is experiencing, whether it's physical distress or psychological and mental distress, then so many other things have impacted them that have put them there in, in the first place. And so I think it's important to look at the multiplicity of ways in which people interface with health issues. I, I totally agree. And the reason I brought it up is because of COVID. It's so prevalent right, right now, and health is such a big issue. And you talk about the determinants of health, the multi-variables that goes into what causes one in a exactly. lot of black neighborhoods, a 10-year life expectancy difference from folks in a white neighborhood a minimum of 10 years with all of the things that you talked about and including housing too, which is a determinant of health, which most people don't think yes. of it that way, but it right. definitely is. And, so. we, and we, and we organize, I, I failed to mention that we do tenant organizing as well. So, yeah. Is that tenant organizing to buy a unit or, or no tenant organizing is designed to help people who are tenants to address issues in their buildings and fight okay. against, uh, you know, I, I was talking about abusive and discriminatory policing before, but <laughs> abusive and discriminatory landlording and uh, the ways in which people are living under poor conditions in their housing. The idea is to bring tenants together, help them understand their rights and help them in a collective way, really sort of change the, the balance of power that exists in buildings across uh, the city in, in which people, you know, again, are living under poor conditions and whether it's a single landlord or whether it's some kind of cooperative 
corporate holding company that uh, is unresponsive to people's needs, making sure that people understand how to organize, how to come together, again, how to identify what is due them and to fight back and, and to demand and ensure living conditions that, you know, that, that have them exist in dignity and in good health. So I really want to talk to you about how you got into this, but I'm not going to go there right now. What I want to know is how do you use co-ops as a tool to help solve these problems that you've just identified? Well, I, I think before you work on any of these issues, or at least while you're working on these issues, you have to have an understanding of the systems that impact you and the conditions that we're living in and why we're living in these conditions, right? And so whether it's understanding how government impacts you, whether it's understanding, you know, how housing laws and policies impact you, how policing policy impacts you, we have an analysis of the way we live and the forces that impact us and have an understanding of how capitalism, for instance, can be predatory. It oftentimes pits us against one another. It creates a, a zero-sum game for us. And when you talk about, for instance, food in a neighborhood, the forces that don't start with the question of how do we build collective wealth or how do we stay healthy or how do we make sure that the food system is sustainable and we how do we make sure that the the food that we're consuming is not traveling you know long distances to get there and when you have that kind of understanding and analysis you understand how supermarkets um have in many instances have fleed our neighborhoods how the people who own supermarkets are, are there for profit, are not there for our well-being. And it eventually, in our case, got us to the model of a food co-op where people come together and rather than setting prices that are based on profit. some kind of right extractive profit model, it's all based on what local people can afford and how can you provide food in a way that is sustainable for all and is not necessarily based on on profit making and so we think about that in every single aspect of our lives and you know people have been been building cooperatives for hundreds if not thousands of years and you know we don't always have the means to start something brand new we look at models that exist and so, for instance, food co-ops are, are models that exist and that we have borrowed on. Um, in the past, I've worked with credit unions, which are a way, you know, and you and I have talked about credit unions in the past, are ways of, of trapping capital and thinking of finance in a democratic fashion and having people think of themselves as stakeholders in, in financial institutions. And in general, you know, I also belong to uh, formations and coalitions that are trying to build solidarity economies so that you have cooperatives in different aspects of our lives that are working together and work in sort of intersectional ways. And so we're doing business with one another and no cooperative sector 
is out there on its own, but it is ultimately working cooperative with people in other in other sectors. So whether it be, you know, uh, credit unions, whether it be mutual uh, housing associations, whether it be food co-ops, whether it be community gardens, um, having all those different cooperative universes actually working with one another and in sync with one another. So it's, you know, we think of cooperatives really just as helping to build this alternative world that we've always said should exist and to be very intentional about it. And that's where the institution buildings come in, uh, institution building comes in. That is, it's not just talking about it and trying to practice it on an individual level, but really try to practice it on a neighborhood level, on a systemic level, and make sure that those practices are institutionalized and handed down from generations. And we have a way of creating systems that uh, ultimately reinforce our belief systems. I really like listening to you talk and you say a lot. You hit food co-ops, credit unions, solidarity economy, in there with worker co-ops, right. co-ops working together. That's the principle six of the co-op, seven cooperative principles. And all of this is the seventh principle of concern for community. It's, it's the seventh principle of cooperation. It's, so if you look at Brooklyn and you look at how people live, how many people live in poverty or low income or to the point where they don't have money to pay for air conditioning or they don't have air conditioning in their homes and they can right. die prematurely. The whole system seems to be against the poor or low income mm -hmm. people. And too many black mm -hmm. folks are in that category. Black, brown, native people are in that category of poor. And the, the whole capitalistic system, you talked about it, extractive. The whole idea of capitalism is to come in and take out money. Mm -hmm. There were money only turns maybe one time in Brooklyn. Somebody goes out and work and they spend it on the way home. Or they come home and then they spend it, but they buy outside of the community where uh, – in my economy classes, they talk about five to six times in a white neighborhood. And right. somebody told me in Tulsa, the one reason Tulsa was so so profitable back in the day with black folks, that the money turned 32 times. Mm. I'm going. I couldn't believe it. I would love to see that that how they how they found that out. But I can't even imagine right. that that you you make some money somewhere, maybe in your own business. You come and buy it from me, and then I go buy it from the person down the street, and they buy it from that person. If that money turned 32 times in Brooklyn, how wealthy Brooklynites would become. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I like what you're doing. Right. I like what you're saying. Yeah. I, when you look at Brooklyn or so many other neighborhoods, so, so many areas across the country, it's important to recognize that a, a few things. One is that it, it's hard to sustain local hyper-local economies in a world where capitalism exists in a global and multinational way, right? So you can literally live in Crown Heights on St. Mark's Avenue and shop in a, a supermarket that is owned by someone in Hong Kong and mm -hmm. pay rent to someone who lives 
in Dubai, in Germany, you know. Um, and the Chinese are buying a lot of China either buying a lot of real estate, so it might be sending your money to China. Yeah, right, right. Anything, you know, yeah. and and so just trapping capital in a local way, I think, is is very difficult in this day and age, in general. But when you look at the fact that black folks, in particular, own so little, whether it's property, whether it's businesses, or you know controls so little of the economy, then you understand that it's difficult for those people to thrive and to build any kind of collective wealth because they have no way to trap it. They have no way to, to collect it. And, and, and when we talk about it, I think it's important to make the distinctions. It's like, you know, we're not talking about, okay, let's, let's, let's get some McDonald's franchises in here or make sure that we identify, you know, one black person who's a landlord here or there. You know, I don't, I don't want to slip into a conversation about black entrepreneurism, which I, I, which is fine, right? I think it's important for black people to own their own businesses, but to do it in a way that doesn't just simply replicate the capitalist system and replicate the ways in which we can be extractive among one another. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So for instance, you know, I, I, I'm in a home that was purchased by my grandmother in the late forties. And I've been very intentional about holding onto this property and, you know, there are different floors and, and renting out to people from the area and making sure that I'm not charging too much that I'm, I'm, I'm charging just enough to make myself to feed myself, but, you know, not looking to see if I can gouge people and take as much from them as possible. That kind of mindset is something that we're trying to cultivate, if you will, mm -hmm. in central Brooklyn, looking at ourselves as, as people who are sharing as opposed to easy marks that we can take from. And that that's that's essentially what capitalism really inspires you to do is to think about how you can get as much as you can for yourself. And how can we build a society where where we're we're sharing with one another as opposed to exploiting one another? I totally agree and that's why I like this co op and that's why Pat and I started this everything co-op radio show because how do we can come together pool together and that seems to be at the core of humanity is what we what we're calling cooperation now uh but i think we brought it over from west africa and south africa and boom sure. i am because you are you are because i am and i think that's that's at the core of humanity is sharing working together tribes exactly uh native americans would do it everybody knew what their job was in the community and if they didn't do their right. job the community floundered right so have you started the food co-op yes and no in the sense that we started organizing it some years ago and we're looking to actually open the doors it's going to be a consumer-owned retail operation located in central brooklyn so we've organized it we have a board of directors we have a set of guiding principles. We have members 
We have several hundred members. We also understand that it's hard to talk about a food co-op and for and for people to join unless they're actually going to <laughs> unless there's actually some food for them to to access and to to buy. So we're looking to open our doors in the latter part of 2022. During the pandemic, what we were forced to do was kind of pause our organizing for the moment and just address some of the food, uh, the dire food insecurity in, in central Brooklyn. So we, uh, we started something called Hold Down BK, which was a, an effort to take advantage of a lot of the, the charitable, charitable giving that was out there and to funnel resources to food insecure families in, in central Brooklyn. And so we made purchases from a, uh, a black worker co-op, worker-owned co-op in central Brooklyn that was able to source food and we bought it from them and we redistributed this food to black people and the brown people throughout central Brooklyn who are food insecure. So, I mean, and the idea was, as we did that, to talk to people about the food co-op mm-hmm. and help them understand that, yes, it, you, you cannot live on a charitable model, right? That as long as you have not, and I'm just sort of redistributing food to you from people who have, that that's not a way to survive, much less thrive. And so as we ran Hold Down BK, we talked to people about the food co-op, we got some people to join, and we built relationships with people. That's what community organizing is all about. We built organ uh, relationships with these folks so that when the food co-op is ready to open, we can come to them and say, look, you know who we are. You, you know that we are about food and about the best interests of this community. We want you to take a, a leap of faith here and join this food co-op and really think of a different way of purchasing food so that you're not just buying food, but you're a member. You're putting in some hours every month of sweat equity to help the institution grow. It's really establishing a different relationship between you and food. And we're building towards that such that when we open up our food co-op at the end of this year, people will have a deeper understanding of the model we're trying to build and the values that we're trying to cultivate. So the fifth principle of cooperation is education, education, training, information. Where are you giving your information about the food co-op and running a food co-op? And you said you set up different aspects already of it. Well, as far as the technical understanding of how to build a food co-op? I mean, it's a, it's a good question because, one, there are not a lot of black-run, uh, black-led food co-ops in this country, but even less so, there are very few food co-ops that are consumer-owned, right? And this It's an important to understand the distinction between what we're building and what exists. I mean, it, it, what we're building is different in a couple of ways. One, it's consumer-owned in the sense that if you shop there, you um, are a owner as opposed to if you work there, you're owner. I mean, it will it'll probably be a hybrid so that people who work there will also be part owners, but it's based on a model that exists in Park Slope, um, the Park Slope Food Co-op, which is um, one of the largest food co-ops in the country. And it's based on the idea not only is that as a shopper, you are a part, partial owner, but it's also based on this idea that if you are going to shop there, we ask that you become a member so that while it's open to the public, uh, 
the people who shop there, unlike some food co-ops or most food co-ops where anyone can sort of walk off the street and shop there, the way our food co-op is run is in order to shop there, you have to become a member first. Okay. And, and so there's no way for you to we, – we don't want to draw distinctions between people who can afford to shop there and not be a member and people who have to become a member in order to afford to shop there. We want everyone to be on the same level. And so when you talk about food co-ops that operate like that, there are not many of them. And it's not a lot of expertise around those in the black neighborhood. And so, yeah, we have to take a break, don't we? Yes, we have to take a break. And <laughs> we'll be back. And I want to talk about the, the difference between consumer and worker co-op, the different types of co-ops. Right. And then I would like to get into talking about Kwanzaa and the connection between Kwanzaa and cooperation. Sure. Uh, I really like the things that you're doing and the reasons that you're doing it. When I found about uh, co-ops, um, I liked it because everyday people could learn how to run a co-op. Everyday right. people could get the knowledge they need. And you, first thing you said was education, first policy you all were working with, and that's a critical. And we, and we can talk some more about that when we after the break. We will. We'll be right back, everybody. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And we have Mark Griffith on the line. With, um, we're doing Zoom this morning, and we're talking about the work that, that they're doing and organizing in Brooklyn. And, Mark, before we took the break, we were talking about education, which is the fifth principle of cooperation. We talked about the sixth and the seventh one. Just real quickly, the first one is volunteer and open membership. The second is democratic member control. The third is member economic participation. You can put some money in to join usually. And when and if there's a profit, the members can decide how that's used, and it could be used for dividends. And you have to have autonomy and independence. So those are the seven principles of cooperation. But you were talking about education before we took the break. You want to finish that conversation? Sure. I mean, I, I think of it on two levels. One is when we think about the fact that there have not been many food co-ops in this country that are owned by black people. I mean, I, I, I talked a lot about our, our model, and that was all a way of just explaining that there's not, there's not a lot of deep experience that we're able to draw upon in terms of people who have run these kinds of institutions. Now, obviously, there are black folks who have, you know, run food retail operations and other kinds of cooperatives, but specifically this kind of food co-op, there's not a lot of, there's not a deep reservoir of experience. And so, you know, one of the things we're doing is we are members of the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, which, which is a national coalition of organizations from across the country that are involved in food sovereignty, either, you know, on the uh, land side, land steward side and farming side or you know, you've got quite a few few uh, urban communities that are are building gardens and are distributing food and are building cooperatives. And so we're a part of a cohort this year of emerging food co-ops from across the country. And we're going to be just doing everything we can to share information and access the uh, what can be elusive as far as expertise in 
running this kind of operation. Um, the other portion of the other education aspect that I'd like to just mention is, you know, is education of our members and making sure that, you know, even before the food co-op has opened, we do a lot of work around um, nutrition and uh, food demonstrations, but also around uh, cooperative training, helping people understand what it means to belong to a co-op, doing political education, talking to people about the history of cooperativism, not just uh, in Brooklyn, in central Brooklyn, but across the country. So that, uh, you know, when people join the food co-op, they're not, again, just acting as passive consumers, but they're people who understand what we're trying to do, understand the legacy that we're grounded in, and can really build upon the, the cooperative values and principles that we've used to start to organize this co-op in the first place. So just wanted to put that in the mix as far as education is concerned. That's fantastic. That's really fantastic. Now, I would like for you to educate me and our audience on Kwanzaa. What is Kwanzaa? What is Kwanzaa? It's funny, you know, I first became familiar with Kwanzaa when I was in college um, in the early and mid 80s. And when I graduated, I came home back to Brooklyn and really was looking to kind of rebuild kind of community that I had when I was in college. I was I was part of a very vibrant community of black students there and faculty and people who lived in the in the Providence, Rhode Island area. And I wanted to replicate that. I wanted to to rebuild community for myself, um, having been away from home for, for such a long time. And really just started investigating Kwanzaa and understood that, you know, a lot of people think of Kwanzaa as some kind of black Christmas, right? Mm -hmm. And when you think of Ron Karengo, who helped develop Kwanzaa, in, I believe, 1966, I think he was very intentional about not simply, you know, taking Christmas, putting a black face on it and, and calling that something. Um, he wanted to address the consumerism that was deeply embedded in Christmas, but, but also recognize that Christmas and New Year's and that holiday period is something that Black people in the United States observe and is a part of their culture. And so I think he really wanted to give people an alternative, but understand where they were. And so Kwanzaa means the first fruits. It's developed from this idea that in Africa and in other agricultural in, in agricultural settings, there's a time of the year where uh, we were of the harvest, right, that we we, we use the time to reflect on where we've been, where we are today, and to look forward. And so Kwanzaa is based on seven principles that are all derived from East and West and North and South African cultures. I mean, it's, it's, it's a Swahili term, and it's based, based in, in that culture, but in many ways, it's not just a Pan-African way of looking at things, but it's a way in which traditional cultures have done community building. And so the the seven principles of Kwanzaa are all, are all Swahili terms, 
and are meant to identify key values of community building that are not based on European and extractive and capitalist systems, but really offer an alternative way for us to look at ourselves and, and to do community building. And so the idea is that it's Kwanzaa starts on the 26th of December, the day after people traditionally see Christmas, and goes on for seven days. And in each of those days, you start with the question or the greeting, Habaragani, which means what's the news? Like, what's happening? What's going on? And on each of those days, you take a moment to respond using one of the principles of Kwanzaa. And so, you know, I don't want to embarrass myself and and get the order wrong. I'm, but, I'm, I'm um, looking at him. I don't know him by heart, but <laughs> Moja, unity is the first one. And so that's celebrated right. on the 26th of December. Right. So, so right. The 26th of December, someone will say to you, Habaragani, and you say Moja, and you then meditate on what unity means and how do you practice unity in your community and in your surrounding. Um, so why don't you go through the, the next ones? Well, unity, um, to, for me, it is that is what cooperation is about, working together, trying to figure out how you make decisions that's best for the group and not for the individual. Right, right. right. Not necessarily just for the individual, but, but what is best for the group. And the other one, right. I cannot pronounce it, Kujichagalia. Okay. <laughs> Self-determination. Right, self-determination. Right. So that, like, with that's one of the principles of cooperation, one of the values, self-determination. It's interesting. You you want to do things that's good for the self in the context of what's best for the group. Okay. Right. Not, not all by itself, like John Wayne and this Western world of I'm going to pick up myself by my bootstraps. No, it's not that self-determination. Right. But working within the group. Right. Okay. Right. Right, and, and, and I will say that self-determination, well, I mean, all of these themes obviously are a big part of, of what we do, but we constantly come back. If you listen to the work that the Brooklyn Movement Center does and where I think we are in terms of a black movement across this country right now, you'll hear a lot about self-determination, making sure that we are defining ourselves in our own way and that we have a way of leading ourselves as opposed to relying on, on other people to do that for us. And it is the we. I get that. Exactly. We, um, not the I. We. Right. Right. Collective work and responsibility is the third day, which would be the 28th. Right. Ujima. So you want to tell us about right. that? Sure. I mean, it, uh, many of these principles are very, they're, they're, there's a lot of overlap, right? So... The idea is when we go out there and we are, are, are working and we're in our communities, again, it gets back to the idea that we're not just doing for ourselves, we're doing for our families, we're doing for our neighbors, we're doing for all the people we, we consider to be part of our community. And so the idea is that we see ourselves as role players. We understand our role in the bigger sort of ecosystem of, of the work that we're doing. So, for instance, you know, uh, the Brooklyn Movement Center is a member of many different coalitions, and we have a very oftentimes discreet and important role to play in these coalitions 
because we're black led, because we're based in central Brooklyn, because we are uh, what we call direct action community organizing group. And whereas other organizations may be, they may focus on research. They may focus on education and advocacy. They may be citywide. They may have different skills that they bring to bear. So it's, it's understanding that you're part of a team and understanding what your specific role in that team actually is. I see so much um, correlation between what a co-op is and the reason for cooperation. I mean, even the value self-help, self-responsibility, the first two values in cooperation. Um, right. And doing it together, collective, work together. Right, exactly. It says that uh, to make our brothers and sisters problems our problems and solve them right. together. And exactly. I had a man from Senegal to come on. Papa, Papa Sin said that uh, co-ops are formed to solve community problems. If there's no community problems, there's no need for a co-op. It just fits <laughs> right into this. Uh, Ujama, the fourth principle, which would which would have been celebrated yesterday, the 29th. Right, right, right. Well, we oftentimes say it's called Ujama. Okay. So there's yeah, Umoja. Kujichagalea, Ujima, and Ujama, yeah, and, so and that's cooperative, cooperative economics, and again, there's overlap with with every single one of these principles. And Ujama, I think, is really designed to help train people's eyes on a different way of doing business. That is, we are so enthralled and so. Uh, captivated by by consumerism and by capitalism you know it, it oftentimes reminds me of uh, i don't know if you've seen the, the the movie the matrix but it reminds me of the fact that everything we do is our imaginations are so shaped by capitalism and so it's hard for us to interact with money and sustainability in a way that is not exploitative and extractive. And so Ujama is, again, we were talking about credit unions before. It's a way for us to see ourselves as participating in something that is larger in ourselves. And that when we, when we use whatever currency we have, it doesn't even have to be a dollar. We could be bartering skills and labor. Mm -hmm. It can mean sharing talent. It's just a, a different way of thinking about us as, as being living in a community of abundance and resources that can be shared as opposed to how can we uh, make the most money off of something or how can we take from someone? It's a, it's a really diff it's a different way of looking at, at our economic selves. It's phenomenal. There is a group called Ujama in Pittsburgh, Ujama Collective. Mm -hmm a group of black women that are artists and they form the, their collective. You can go to ujamacollective.org and look at beautiful paintings and jewelry, woodwork. They have a storefront, uh, which neither artists could do on their own, but working together they can. And they will sell other folks art from the diaspora, particular women made art. Right. Uh, so that was celebrated yesterday. Today is Nia. Right. And so you would approach me and say what this morning? So I would say Habaragani, and you would say? Nia. That's it. <laughs> <laughs>
And then we just use that moment to, again, just meditate on, on, on the term and, and what it means in our lives. And so Nia, which means purpose, is a way of just being mindful about what we're on this earth to do. Why are we here? Oftentimes, we're unconscious in our, in our day-to-day work. We're just we're sort of putting one step, one foot in front of the other and not actually thinking about what is the value we're trying to bring on this earth? What is our, what is our personal and collective mission? What are we here to do? And so if you, always have a, if you always have a North Star, if you always have understand where your destination is and why you're doing something, then it's much easier for you to stay on, on your path and to be true to yourself. And, and so Nia is a way of centering ourselves in that conversation about what is our purpose. So real quickly, mine is voice, my purpose, mm. my reason for being voice. And, um, it, it, and that means V for Vernon, O for Oaks, I for inspires, <laughs> V-O-I-C, communities, E, everywhere. Vernon Oaks inspires right. communities everywhere. So that's using my voice. And that's to help people have a better quality of life. And I see co-ops as a way of doing that. I see that's what you're doing in the Brooklyn movement. And I... Mm-hmm was in college in the 60s, uh, 65, I graduated from high school, graduated from college in the 70s, and I got the wrong idea of what uh, Kwanzaa was, and I'm glad mm. we're having this conversation, so you're helping me to see what it is, so I will start mm. celebrating this. I have <coughs> not been. So assuming we were in tomorrow, I would say right. Habagavi, and you would say what? Uh, you, you say Habaragani, and I would Habaragani. say Kumba. Uh-huh. I say Kumba. Okay. Uh-huh. I say Kumba. And Kumba means creativity. And this again is a way of centering ourselves in, I would say, in, to some extent, in our, in our, I mean, we're going to talk about spirituality in a moment, but to, to explore the dimensions of ourselves that, how do we put it? That it, it's not just about the arts it's a, it's it's a it's centering ourselves on how do we express ourselves and how do how are we how do we work around problems and how are we being inventive and designing new ways to do things to express ourselves and to contribute to the world that you know cr- when you talk about creativity the the root that word is, is creation like how do we generate ideas and and goodwill and things that improve our lives and make us happy and, and feed ourselves. And so creativity is all about being generative and regenerative in our, in our lives and, and, and thinking about how we contribute to one another in, in, in that way. That's fantastic because voice is my purpose that I've just explain and i used to think i wasn't creative because i could not draw or sing or all of these things i thought creativity was about and until i got okay how do you how do you really help people how do you solve the problem you just said it well you just said extremely Mm. well and so i found i'm very creative and looking for more ways to be creative and work with people like you that's being creative uh to help solve problems no matter where they are and there's a group right. of young folk in um, in Los Angeles, downtown Crenshaw, and they're doing creating this uh, 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 cooperative ecosystem also 
in the Crenshaw neighborhood mm-hmm. being very, very creative. Same kinds of things that you're talking about. So black folks are doing it all over. Black and brown folks are doing it all over and how we work together. So Right. And, and a lot of people, you know, you, you use the word creativity. And a lot of people say, oh, I can't dance or I can't sing or I can't draw, right? Yeah. And obviously the arts contribute so much to our lives. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a rabid music and uh, movie consumer. But I think it's important, to, as you say, to think, creative, think of creativity in so many different ways in how we interact with people, the work that we do, our families, all of that. It requires a certain kind of inventiveness where, like, every day you need to figure out, you know, that, that's where jazz came from, right? Jazz wasn't just a musical expression. It came out of black people needing to figure out how to live, how to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's... You know, the idea of, of improvisation is, is this idea that, okay, every day I wake up and there's a new obstacle there's an, in front of me and I got to figure out how to get around it, yep. right? Yep. And I need to come up with something. And that is at the, at the heart of what creativity is. And then on the seventh day, which is January 1st, uh-huh. if we were on January 1st, I would say Ubergard. Barigani. <laughs> I'm going to get it. I have to listen to this and listen to it. And you would say? Imani, which means faith. So we start January and, 1 looking at faith, the beginning right, of the year. Okay. Right, right, right. And so, I mean, again, faith is one of those things where you can easily see it in terms of religion or spirituality. But, you know, it's funny. When I originally started doing Kwanzaa Celebrations, in the 80s, I asked some of the people I went to school with, and I asked a gentleman um, who's a pastor now in a church in Harlem, and he was talking about faith. And I immediately thought he, he was going to start going into talking about Christ and, you know, Christianity his, his, and his Christian faith. And he started talking about the fact that we, we take faith for granted in so many ways, right? So if we go and we sit down on a chair, there's faith that there's going to be something below us, that it's that when we sit down, it's not going to crumble, that we're going to be safe in that moment. And so every part of our lives is an extension of faith. We're taking some things for granted. We're investing our belief in something. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be in something that is outside of ourselves. But it can be something that we feel from within, and that could be within ourselves as individuals, within our communities, within our families. And it is you you cannot survive on this earth without some level of faith. If you don't believe that it's worth that this world is worth living in, if you don't believe that you have the ability to survive, then you're going to probably not want to be on this earth and find ways to remove yourself from this earth. And so faith is making sure that we're centering ourselves in a belief system, in something that is at once part of ourselves, but beyond ourselves as well. Love it, bro. Love it. Um, What would you like to leave people with today? You know, I guess I'd like to leave folks with the fact that, again, thinking of Kwanzaa not just as, as a black Christmas, but to really delve into the different 
principles and to think about how you can incorporate them in your life and in your lives and how you can cultivate these values in your family, in, in your community. And so, yeah, I, w- I would ask people to just Google, Google Kwanzaa and to study it. Um, and there's nothing perfect about it. You know, it was the brainchild of some uh, someone who was teaching in San Francisco at the time, um, teaching Africana studies. So you can adopt it in the way that, that makes sense for you. And I think that that's the way we approach any faith, any, any belief system, incorporating it, for our, incorporating it for our own use and lives. So, Mark Griffith, I would like to get up as soon as I can to Brooklyn um, uh-huh. to see when you all have a celebration. Uh, I, I can dance a little bit, not sing. You can't get me up on stage. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't want that. But I really love what you're doing, and maybe to come into a meeting when you're when you're teaching, I can learn or get in front of the mic and teach a little bit. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Vernon. Great to be here. Everybody out there, please uh, enjoy this week. Today is purpose. Tomorrow is creativity, and then the first is faith. We hope we will see you next Thursday, and please live cooperatively. 